Welcome to the Amherst Wesleyan Church Sermon Podcast. This morning, we are beginning a new series entitled Understanding the Bible, and it's my privilege to start this series off by explaining to you the entire Bible. So we might, <laughs> woo, that's right, we might be here longer than expected, so hopefully you brought your lunch. All right. <laughs> no, I, when, when Evan said, I need you to teach the Bible from generation all the way to Revelation in a half hour, I was like, all right, let's do this. We can do that, right? It's possible. You believe it? All right. Good. There was a guy by the name of Thomas Jefferson. Anyone familiar with that name at all? Okay. He was a United States president a couple hundred years ago, and one of the founding fathers, and he did some some stuff. Now, one of the things that he did, which was interesting, is he took the Bible, and he read through it, and he said, I don't like it. I refuse to believe certain stories, and I I refuse to go along with certain teachings. And so he took a knife, and he cut out papers of his Bible, and whittled his Bible down, you know, back then they were this thick, right? And he whittled it down to like that thin. He said, I'm going to reject all of this stuff I don't agree with. I'm going to cut those pages out and reduce my Bible down to just the narrow, slim pickings of verses that I agree with, that I enjoy reading, that make sense to me, and I'm just going to reject the rest of it. You can actually go and buy a Thomas Jefferson Bible on Amazon, and you will see what's missing when you compare it to your own. It's interesting. He refused to accept most of Jesus' teachings, most of Jesus' miracles, lots of what's in the Old Testament, and his Bible is extremely thin. Sometimes we ourselves, or maybe we meet other people in our life who are similar to Thomas Jefferson, we'll say the Bible doesn't make any sense, and there's only parts of it that are any good for me, and so maybe I will take a knife, you know, and cut out pages of my own Bible and just refuse to go along with what's, what, what else is in there. We'll say, the Bible's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's oppressive because there's parts that support slavery and sexism somehow, it's just full of fairy tales, and so I'm going to just cherry-pick certain verses that feel good to me and then refuse to go along with the rest. That's what Thomas Jefferson did, and that's what some of us maybe sometimes are guilty of doing as well. Now, what we're going to do this morning is go through the entire Bible, and what we're going to actually see in the next few minutes is that God's Word is divinely inspired and a carefully crafted document written over 5,000 years that has a consistent narrative, and that in the words of the Apostle Paul, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is compiled of 66 books written over 5,000 years, approximately, with multiple authors, multiple languages, and lots of diversity. And so it can be, for some of us, confusing and complicated and maybe even intimidating. But 
we're going to go through it, and by the end of this, hopefully we'll all have some clarity, and we'll all be able to go, I think I can handle this book. Sound good? All right, let's start with this first slide, Nathan, if you want to put that up. There's a pretty rainbow, all right? Anyone want to just take a guess as to what this is? Time lapse, maybe. Okay, this here is a map, believe it or not. This is a map. This is every single reference, cross-reference they call them, in the Bible. And so every individual line, so if you look at the bottom line, you see the, the, the long white line. On the left-hand side, that would be Genesis, and on the far right side, that would be Revelation, and everything else is all the books in the middle. And each line represents a cross-reference, something that was in the Old Testament that gets um, talked about again in the New Testament, or maybe it's talked about uh, in a later part of the Old Testament. And so there are all of these cross-references. Now, anyone want to venture a guess as to how many of those tiny little lines there are? How many? 5,000? We're going to play prices Right. Okay. (laughs) Someone's pointing up, so more. Someone else, come on. I'm a youth pastor. I have to do this kind of stuff to get you engaged. More than, more than 5,000 or less? 500,000? Okay. Any other numbers? Any other guesses? 1,000? Oh, 20,000? All right. Ready, Nathan? Here's the answer. 63,779 that we currently know about, but we have 2,000 years worth of scholarly work. That's a hard word. To tell us how many cross-references there are. So this just here goes to show how consistent the Bible is in its narrative. And when you factor in the fact that it was written over 5,000 years, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. All right, go ahead, Nathan, to the next one. So this is kind of what we're going to be looking at for the rest of our time. This is the overall narrative of the Bible. And hopefully this is big enough for you to see. So, those of you who teach English or you know about English literature, you've probably seen a line similar like that. That's kind of the narrative structure for most books. If you read any of, I don't know, Shakespeare or Chaucer or anything like that, they all have a little line that goes like that. You have a beginning, you have an initial incident, you have rising action, you have a climax, a falling action, and then a resolution or a denouement, depending on how fancy you want to get. So, in the Bible, we start with creation. That is the very first thing we learn about. And then we move through and we learn how there's harmony, there's peace, things are good, but then we have something happen called the fall. That happens very early on, and that's our initial incident that sets off the rest of what happens in the Bible. And so from there, right up until you see the climax with the cross, that's Jesus. This is all the Old Testament where we learn about the nation of Israel, about the law, the prophets, and everything like that. Jesus comes along and fulfills all those prophecies, dies and resurrects on a cross, and immediately following that we have the uh, creation of the church, which then starts 2,000 years ago and is continuing today. And then we have this falling action where we learn through letters written by Paul and other apostles of how we're meant to live and how we're meant to function. And then we have one last book called Revelation where it gives us uh, all of the promises for the future of a future redemption, restoration, where Jesus will return and all things will be set right. There you go. You got it. 
Now we're going to go through it a little more in depth. And I've got some friends here with me this morning that are going to help us go through the Bible. I've got my little peanut gallery over here that's going to help us go through a little more in depth of what this entire overall structure is. So we're going to start back in creation with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pretty straightforward. In the beginning, God created. Everything that we see, everything that we touch, everything that we can hear, God created that. God had a part in making that. And this is foundational for us to believe because we did not come from some accident that happened in some soup and and some sort of explosion. We were purposefully created by God. After creation, we go on to learning about the creation of human beings, found in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Again, foundational for us to believe that not only did God create this whole world, but he created each of us in his image. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. God created you in his image. You have purpose. You have meaning. You have the image of God implanted on your entire DNA. That's why we have a mind. That's why we are able to also make creations of our own. This is why we can talk and communicate with one another. There is something special and unique that sets us apart from the rest of creation. After that, we then learn about the fall. This is the initial incident that kind of takes everything into a place that God never intended for us to go, but it's important to understand. This is found in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the living of the garden. You must not touch it, for you will die. You will not certainly die, said the God created us to be perfect and without blemish. And then sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's falling into temptation and going along with the words of a serpent instead of the words of God. They, they were like Thomas Jefferson, really. They, they rejected the word of God and pursued things on their own. Now, immediately following this event, God steps in and says, what has happened? You, you have fallen from me. You are now full of sin. But then God, in his love and his mercy, promises redemption. He says to Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3:15 You know, put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you, and you shall bruise his heel. 
God promises, not just to Adam and Eve, but to all mankind, you will be redeemed. I will crush the head of that serpent who brought you into temptation. And that person who will redeem you, he will have his heels struck, which is a foreshadowing again to Christ. But early, right in the very first book of Genesis, God promises redemption to mankind. Years go by, and God's plan of redemption begins to unfold more and more, and then we move into the story of Abraham. Here, God gives a covenant promise to a man named Abraham that redemption will come through him, and his story is found in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, 15, 5, and 22, 18. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's family. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Lord took Abraham outside and said, Look up at the sky. Count the stars, if you can. Then he said to him, that's how many children will be born into your family. Through our descendant, through your descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Through the line of Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Again, this is a foreshadowing to a coming redeemer, someone who will bless all peoples, all nations. The, the promises of God's redemption is coming at a later time, but it is going to come through Abraham. A couple generations after Abraham, God makes a promise to Judah and says, there will be a king who comes through you who will be this redeemer. And that is found in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff of his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So God has made a promise to mankind to redeem them, and he's done this through Abraham and now through Judah. But something happens, and the entire nation of Israel finds itself in slavery and in bondage in a country of Egypt. They are there working tirelessly, and 400 years have passed since these promises had been made to Judah. And the Israelites find themselves in this predicament where, well, God promised us redemption. He promised us uh, that we would be a great nation, and he promised us a coming king. But here we are in slavery and in bondage, and they cry out to God, deliver us. And so God raises up Moses, and we hear the story of the Exodus through Moses and everything like that. And one of the things that God gives to Moses and the Israelites just before they depart Egypt is a is a meal, a meal called the Passover, and in the Passover they are to sacrifice a lamb. And here's what God says to Moses and the Israelites about how they are to uh, practice this meal before leaving Egypt. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. 
None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you will keep this service. And when you and your children say, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the service of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the house of the, of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. God gives the Israelites this meal that is to be something they practice for the years to come. But it is significant and it symbolizes, again, a coming redeemer, someone who will be a sacrificial lamb who will take away the sin of the world. Eventually, the Israelites get out of Egypt and they enter the desert. And they do some things that they're not supposed to do. They, they build a golden calf and they worship it instead of God and say, well, this, this golden calf is the one that brought us out of Egypt, not the Lord. And so God says, you will not enter the promised land. Instead, it will be the ones to come after you, your children and their children. And so they wander the desert for about 40 years and then they all die, but their children grow up to enter the promised land. And they are led into the promised land by a leader named Joshua. And through Joshua, they conquer the Canaanites and all the other ites, and they take over the land, and they form the nation of Israel. And it looks as though the promise of redemption is finally happened. But then something goes wrong. The Israelites begin uh, falling away from God again and again. So God raises up judges to restore the land and restore the people so that they can live in prosperity and continue to live in safety. And this act of redemption has not fully been made as they keep falling away and falling away. Judges concludes with the final judge. His name was Samuel. And when Samuel comes to be the, the judge and leader of, of Israel, the people come to him and they demand a king and if you were here a few weeks ago, you heard a little bit more about that story when I preached on it. But they come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. We, we're looking around at all these other nations and they have a king. And, and God promised us a king, by the way, through Judah. Like, where is he, by the way? We want a king. And so then Samuel gives into this and, and Saul is the first king and he didn't work out. He was pretty terrible. But then another guy named King David comes along and he slays Goliath and he becomes king and his whole story is this big thing. But then God makes a promise to David similar to the one he made to Abraham where he says to David in 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 and 13, when your days are over and your rest with your ancestors, I will raise your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It appears as though God's work of redemption is now going to come not just through Judah, but also through David. And that there will be this king who comes who will reign forever. 
And David has sons of his own, Solomon, he starts out as the first one, but he dies, and then his child dies, and then his child dies, and then his child dies, and none of them seem to reign forever. And throughout that entire period of the kings, each one of them falls away and does stupid things, and they worship other gods. And again, this act of redemption is not fully realized. And the Israelites begin to fall away from God through this, and and they go on to worship other gods. And so during this time, God raises up prophets— and their role is to step in and say, ah, 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 you're not supposed to live that way. Ah, 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 there's a coming king that you're supposed to be looking forward to. You, you are far from God, and you need to get back to understanding his word and trusting him. Eventually, the kings ignore the prophets, and they end up in exile. They go to another land. It's like going back to Egypt, but now this time they're in Babylon, and they are living in Uh, exile, away from their country, and it seems as though these promises of redemption might never happen. But during this time and, and early before it, God sends the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel to remind the people that there is a coming redemption. The first one we learn about is about one who is a suffering servant, and that is found in Isaiah 53 verses 3 and 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in no esteem. Slowly he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our inequities, The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A coming Redeemer who will be a king, but one who will suffer where the iniquity of us all will be laid upon him. A sacrificial lamb. It's all coming together. Isaiah also promises new creation, both to Israel and to the entire world, found in Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. Look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. No longer will babies die when they are a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die that young. In those days, people will live in the houses they built and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards. For my people will live as long as trees. 
children too will be blessed. I will answer them before they even call for me. While they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. The wolf and the lamb will lead together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snakes will eat dust. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed from my own I, the Lord, have spoken. What a beautiful promise. That there will be a new creation one day. And again, God is delivering these promises one after the other throughout the Old Testament that there will be a king who comes, one who will be a suffering servant, one who will bring new creation, one who will be the uh, last Passover lamb that you'll ever have to sacrifice. And one of the last things that is promised to us before we move into the New Testament is resurrection. And that is found in Ezekiel 37 verses 1 through 6. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley that was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. God created the world. He created us in His image. But we turned from Him. But God, in his mercy, promised us redemption. He promised it through Abraham, through Judah, through David, that there would be this Passover lamb, this suffering servant, this new creation, and this resurrection that we can all look forward to. And thus concludes our in-depth study of the Old Testament. For 300 years, there is silence in the land of Israel. Not a prophet comes to speak more promises and the nation of Israel, after hearing all of these promises, goes from one country to another, to one enslavement to another, from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Medes to the Greeks, and then finally with the Romans. And it is at this point in time where the promises of God are ultimately fulfilled in one person. And that is found in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, and make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptized on him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this is his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus from Nazareth uh, in Galilee was baptized by John in Jordan. 
Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come here. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and be baptized. It's one of the first things Jesus says when he enters the scene. And this Jesus spends all his years of ministry doing miracles and teaching people how they ought to live. And during the entire time, there's some who follow him and say, he is the Messiah, he is the promised one, he is the Redeemer. And there are others who say, no, he's not. He's a liar. He's a fool. Don't listen to him. There's two paths that we follow when it comes to the person of Jesus. It's either we follow him or we reject him the same way uh, Adam and Eve followed God or could reject him. The same way Thomas Jefferson took his Bible and either could accept it or reject it. We are met with that same choice. Eventually, some people who didn't like Jesus arrested him, beat him, and sentenced him to death via crucifixion on a cross. That story is found in John 19, 16 through 30. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place on a skull, which in Hebrew is called Ogamba. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Piled out the earth prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claim to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares. One for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by law who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divide our clothes alone and they cast lots in my garment. So this is what the soldiers do. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of the Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of fine wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, then lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he bowed his head. 
It is finished. And Jesus died on that cross. And in that moment, all the promises of God were fulfilled. But for others who were there watching, they thought, he wasn't the Messiah. He's dead now. He's not the coming king. He's not that sacrificial lamb. There is no new creation. There is no resurrection. But then three days later, something amazing happened that no one saw coming. Jesus rose from the dead. Can we stand while this scripture is read to us this morning? Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who believes in me, believes in me, will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you, that reality, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we die with Christ, we are set free from the power of sin. And since we die with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now he lives, and he lives from the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Amen. May we see it. Thank you. Anyone who had doubts that day at the cross, their doubts were upended that day Jesus rose from the dead. And now God's promises had been fulfilled. And there are implications to this. For those of us who are considered human, made in his image, that like I said earlier, we have that choice of which we can follow. We can follow Christ or we can reject him. But for those who choose to follow him, we receive what's called justification, freedom from sin, freedom from bondage and enslavement, new life. And that is found in Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who follows Jesus receives that verse for their life. Freedom from sin. And adoption as his son or daughter, that we can live with him forever. And that forever begins when we are each glorified into that new creation. And that is found in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city 
the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. But the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. For the thirsty, I will give water without cost. From the spring of water of life, those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There's the whole Bible in a little over a half hour. <laughs> Sorry, Evan. When I was younger, I found the Bible to be intimidating and confusing. And in my youth and in my ignorance and foolishness, I rejected it and turned away from it for a very long time. I instead sought wisdom from the world, wisdom from my friends, Wisdom from places that just isn't eternal. And I paid the price for that. Eventually, I came to understand the entire story of Scripture, that it was not this intimidating book that is impossible to understand. I think after hearing all of that, we can agree the Bible is God's promise of redemption to you and to me and we just choose whether or not to follow that. When I learned that, the scripture just kind of came to life for me, and I was able to see it more clearly each day, and now I better understand it and trust it to be the divinely inspired word of God, and it has changed my life forever. And there are others here who it's done the same thing for them too, and I'm sure they could tell you all about it. Now, I got to do this quick. Why does any of this matter? What's the application? What do we do with this? Well, number one, we got to accept it all. We can't pick and choose what verses we like and enjoy. We can't be like Thomas Jefferson and cut out pages of the Bible we don't like. We can't uh, be offended by it. So we have to lay down our offenses. We have to let God's Word transform our entire being. And so we have to accept it all. That's number one. Number two, we got to learn it all. So we do that by studying it, getting into it daily, praying and asking God to reveal his truth as you read it. We ask questions. We get into small groups. By the way, you can sign up for a small group after service. Do that to learn it all. And then number three, we proclaim it all. Amen? Okay. We're not going to be afraid to speak about it when someone criticizes God's word, especially the parts that seem difficult to us. We proclaim it all. We will not be ashamed of the gospel, as it says in Romans 1:16, and we will let the Holy Spirit direct us in all things when it comes to proclaiming it. So we accept it all, 
We learn it all, and we proclaim it all. Sound good? When you get home, take a whiteboard marker and write whole story. W-H-O-L-E. Whole story, because we need the whole story. We depend on its every word. The whole Bible, the whole Bible matters. We depend on its every word. And so write whole story to remind you of that point. Thanks for listening and being part of our church and joining us in this journey to become down-to-earth people following Jesus in down-to-earth ways.